I'm Lawrence Krauss and welcome to the Origins Podcast. On the last podcast that we aired, Andy Knoll and I discussed the first four billion years of life on Earth, addressing questions of how life affected the Earth, the geology of the Earth, and, and vice versa. Clearly important questions to try and understand the origin of life and its interaction with our planet, which address the more foundational question perhaps of is it possible that life originated not just here on Earth, but elsewhere, either elsewhere in our solar system, on uh, other planets, or maybe moons of planets? Equally important, what's the likelihood that life developed elsewhere in the universe on extrasolar planets around distant stars? Clearly, one of the prime developments that have affected that whole search was the discovery of extrasolar planets. The first extrasolar planet was discovered by Michel Mayor and Didier Queloz, and then immediately followed up by the discovery of other extrasolar planets by Jeff Marcy and his team, who discovered 70 of the first 100 extrasolar planets, including the first extrasolar planet located more than 5 AU from its star, about the distance of our current uh, gas giant planets in our solar system. And equally important, the discovery of the first planet that transited its star and dimmed the light of its star. Now, the two techniques that have been used to discover extrasolar planets, looking at the Doppler shift as the star moves in response to the motion of planets around it, and this transiting technique, were spearheaded by Marcy. And for his work in that regard, along with the discovery of extrasolar planets, he and Mayor uh, won the International Shaw Prize in Astronomy. Marcy went on to be one of the uh, co uh, um, PIs on the Kepler satellite mission, which discovered over 4,000 extrasolar planets. And after that, he's also addressed, in fact, another issue that's relevant to understanding life in the universe, the possibility of intelligent life in the universe, the search for intelligent life in the universe. And he was uh, a uh, principal investigator on the Breakthrough Listen program, and more recently has uh, considered the interesting question of whether we might use visible signals to look for extrasolar life instead of just radio signals, an area of uh, research that he's actively involved in right now. Jeff and I discussed all of these important questions, and it's hard to think of a better person to discuss the uh, search for extrasolar planets and their implications for life in the universe, perhaps, than Jeff Marcy, and I enjoyed the discussion tremendously. I hope you do, too. If you want to watch it without ads, you can go to our Critical Mass Substack site and subscribe, uh, then you can watch it without ads. The subscriptions go to help support the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit foundation that supports the podcast and other other uh, activities that help bring science to the public. Or you can go to the Origins Project uh, YouTube channel and watch it there. Or of course, you can listen to this podcast on any place you can listen to podcasts. However you listen to it or watch it, I hope you'll consider supporting the foundation in one of a variety of ways. And more importantly, I hope you enjoy the discussion that Jeff and I had as much as I did. Thanks. Well, Jeff, I'm very happy, really happy that you're finally able to be on my podcast. I, um, as you know, for many, many years, I've not only been a fan of your work, but, uh, but I'm happy to say that, uh, I've gotten to know you better as an individual in the last few years as well. But I remember we first met many, many years ago when uh, when I was chairman of the physics department at uh, Case West Reserve and you came to give a talk. Uh, do you remember that? Absolutely. Very vividly uh, for all sorts of reasons. And I remember meeting you and chatting with you in your office. 
And you were very gracious. I actually think you even gave me some slides. Back, those were in the days, I think, when we used slides. And I said, wow, I'd really like that image. And you said, okay, here's a slide. I think you gave it to me. And I was just shocked and, and, and impressed. <laughs> that you were. So you're very generous even then. Um, I, uh, and I, by the way, I'm, I'm kind of wearing this shirt in honor of you, just so you know. It's amazing. Um, yeah, because um, because I'm going to talk about what it seems to me as I think about what you've done in your career, this notion of charge, not only just the little aliens, but the uh, the notion of charge of basically boldly going, well, where no one has gone before, but boldly going in a way that, you know, we'll just damn the torpedoes full speed ahead, as Richard Feynman once said, but someone else said it before him as well. Um, <laughs> and uh I want to, I want to, as this is an origins podcast, as, as you know, and I want to go back to your origins, which I've been learning about a little bit. You were born in Michigan, but you grew up in California. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Why, how old were you when you moved to California? Four. <laughs> okay. Do you remember All Michigan? I remember, I, I remember being knee deep in snow in uh, Detroit, in the suburbs of Detroit, and that's it. Okay. Well, and, and then you quickly got out for Southern California, right? You grew up in Southern California? Absolutely. Yeah. My whole childhood, uh, public education, uh, the San Fernando Valley, but nobody's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. Now, what, what were your parents uh, professionals or, or were academics or, or what, what did they do? Yeah, it's interesting. My mother uh, majored in anthropology, got her bachelor's degree in anthropology. She used to talk to me about... Um, uh, early hominids and the latest discoveries of hominids on um, on the East African savanna. Um, so I, I was very much imbued with the sense of sort of wonder about our own roots as a species. But my dad was a, a mechanical engineer, um, worked on thermal cooling systems, and he worked on airplanes, jets, and eventually later on, on uh, the space shuttle. Wow. While you were a young kid or? Yeah, yeah. He would tell me about his, you know, he was proud, of course, to have a contract, his group, of course, with NASA and helping with the cooling system. I think he told me he worked on the so-called auxiliary power unit of the space shuttle. Okay. <laughs> I kind of almost know what that was because I was a nerd as a little kid and I used to, well, I used to study the spacecraft. Well, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was younger and, uh, I wanted to be the first Canadian astronaut because they didn't have them back then. Yeah. Um, but and I think I even I, I wrote a letter. I'm not sure I ever sent it trying to convince NASA what a what a um, what a coup it would be, what a public relations coup would be to have someone from another country. But I don't think I ever sent it since I was probably about 14 at the time. But uh, anyway, so this but it's interesting when, when I hear this. So the combination of your parents is kind of interesting. Your 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 own work in a way spans the two things. Your mother's interest in early, in early humans and therefore sort of origins of life issues and uh, modern humans, your father's technical work as an engineer, and your work in some sense has combined the two. Your, your technical work as an astronomer has led us to new thresholds about thinking about origins of life in the universe. So it's kind of nice how you've got to merge those. Who, yeah, well, I, I feel lucky about my parents, that's for sure. Did they encourage your, did, did they encourage your interest in science or how did that arise? You know, that's a good question. And I'm the answer is yes, of course. And I, I can remember every afternoon, and especially evening, 
um, they really required me to do my homework and uh, especially the science and math homework. So I would sit at my little desk in my little bedroom and and they would uh, sometimes peer over my shoulder and make sure I did my homework and try to help me with my homework. Uh, you know, but I, I can remember it. You know, it's one of these situations where your parents are imbuing you with some set of values that you're not even aware of as a child. And I remember, you know, now in retrospect thinking, gee, they were telling me that my schoolwork was important and that learning the basics, English and math and a little science was important. Oh, yeah. Well, it will, well in fact, we'll get back. I wanted to, we'll probably talk about education later. We'll see where we go. But, but uh, that that being t- taught to value those things at home, I guess, is really important. And it's an, and it's affects people throughout the rest of their lives. And yeah, but, but what made you want to do sort of physics and astronomy versus something else? When I was 13 years old, I remember so clearly my mom and dad bought me a poster of the solar system and it had the sun and then the, the nine planets and it had some of the moons. I remember back then Jupiter had only 12 moons that were known. Yeah. And I put it up on next to my bed and I would lie in my bed uh, looking at that poster and thinking about how far away the planets were and how beautiful they were. And the rings of Saturn were unbelievably exquisite. And then the, the, the moons going around and around. And I just thought, wow, this is this is amazing that the distances are huge and we know so much. Of course, this was 1966 or 1967. Um, but it, it really did throw me, um, uh, I think for the long duration about the beauty and the puzzles of the solar system and the universe at large. Hmm. Did you, did you, uh, what about school? Did they encourage you? You know, um, I went to public schools the whole time, elementary school, junior high school, high school. And um, I, I thought my education was quite good. Um, you know, I had teachers who seemed to be able to teach math and English. And I was lucky to take classes in, you know, in writing. So I was learning how to construct a paragraph. And then you know, I took the usual biology and chemistry and physics classes. I wasn't very good at them. Uh, I was really sort of a B plus student. I struggled. But um, uh, I, I feel very lucky that, uh, you know, in public education, I had good classes. Well, that, yeah, that's a really, that, that's nice. I mean, the teachers were supportive. Uh, they basically um, encouraged you to continue. I was reading, as I've been reading about you lately, which has been kind of fun, um, Somewhere someone said that Carl Sagan was a hero of yours. And I'm, is that true? He was. I don't know if they made that up. No, he, he really was inspirational. Um, uh, I, I remember reading one or two of his books and watching him on TV. And I was especially impressed with the way he uh, married social justice issues um, like the uh, need for uh, equality of all peoples, uh, equality for ge- across genders. Um, and he was very interested in um, equality for all nationalities uh, around the globe. 
and he looked at the whole sort of throw of history as a as an as sort of a long story of people uh, gathering together. He saw the human species as a sort of a team and how we should try to pull together as a team. Uh, and he used to talk about what would the advanced civilizations say as they descended toward Earth and looked over the Earth and saw us squabbling in wars with discrimination and uh, financial inequities and so on. And, and he argued, I thought, very persuasively and, and passionately that we should pull together as a species and, and try to try to help each other. Certainly. I mean, he, he tried to think globally in that no, in that way with the golden record was certainly a for, good example of what, of where he tried right. to think about what would humanity as a species want to leave as a, as an imprint in the cosmos uh, in Voyager, as it went out, if it was ever discovered. And I think that's probably the first time any organization officially tried to represent humanity, all of humanity and not some country or not some individual. It was kind of interesting, an interesting yep. uh, idea. Yeah, one, one could argue thought, about what they chose, but yeah, right. Exactly. Well, he, he, I give him full credit um, for viewing uh, we homo sapiens as a sort of fledgling species in the galaxy struggling. And we should try to, uh, you know, encourage coherence uh, and cooperation. What did, did um, you know, the other thing he did, I guess he was political. I mean, his work on nuclear winter, which, by the way, after the fact was probably wrong, but nevertheless, it tried to raise attention and point to the yet another danger of nuclear weapons in a world that still has now still has 10,000, over 10,000 nuclear weapons, uh, far more than, you know, than anyone could ever imagine. And another you know. theme that he raised repeatedly, which I loved, was he talked a lot about equality for women. And he talked a lot about the fact that over the globe, those countries in which the uh, lives of women were improved and the education of women were improved, uh, the, those countries thrived. And, um, and they were financially better off, socially better off. So he was, I thought, a passionate and, and wonderful advocate for equality for, uh, for women. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get to we'll get to that because I know that influenced you in your younger days too, especially uh, yeah when you were a student in a very variety of places. I was reading about that. Did 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 you watch Cosmos? Did that have any impact? Or? Oh, I I loved Cosmos. Yeah, and there's some of those episodes are just indelibly, uh, you know, seared into my brain. I, I thought they were beautiful. The the, the overall philosophy of uh, learning our place in the universe, how small we are, but in the indeed how important we may well be as an intelligent uh, species and civilization. So he, he captured the, the grandeur and the, the puzzles, but also the sort of human spirit, you might say, of our human place in the universe. Yeah, no, he, 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 he was very grand. And I remember, um, yeah, I got, I got to meet him a few times when, when I was at Harvard and he used to come to visit there, but I didn't watch Cosmos, maybe because I grew up in Canada and, and, so for me, it was another individual, Jacob Bernowski, who really had an impact on me in terms of the grandeur of, of the human condition and culture, but also the, the, the wonder and joy of communicating science, which, as you know, obviously, as you know, is something that's, that has been, played a part in my life. But, but you 
have been well known, especially after your dis first discoveries, which gave you more of a platform, as being interested in communicating. Where absolutely uh, did did the did the example of 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 Sagan did that influence you? Is something oh. you thought of doing when you were a young person about wanting to communicate science? <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that. You've reminded me of something I'd forgotten when I was in um, fifth grade. My fifth grade teacher, Wayne Tate, um, mm -hmm. at Plummer Elementary School, he, he one day he came up to me and he said, Jeff, I'll tell you what, you should be a teacher. Oh. And I've never forgotten that. I mean, out of the clear blue. And I don't know what it was about me that made him think that. But maybe he saw that I enjoyed helping other people and teaching them and connecting with them. And so and then, of course, Carl Sagan, as you say, resonated with that. And there were other great teachers, one I can't help but mention here is George A. Bell. He, he's a one, he was a wonderful astronomer uh, professor at UCLA, and he got his PhD at Caltech and discovered clusters of galaxies famous for the so-called A. Bell um, uh, catalog of clusters of galaxies. But he was a passionate teacher, and he ran his own science school, and I was lucky to take two classes from him and he, he also said to me, you know, uh, teaching is the, the greatest honor that you can do as a scientist. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, you know, it, we'll get to that because part of it was interesting to me that I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, part of the attention you got for discovering exoplanets was due to the nature of discovery. But I think compa as par compared to your collaborators and other people, people turn to you because you were able to talk to, in addition to having made the discoveries, were able to, to convey not only the excitement and passion, but talk about the science to, to, um, to uh, journalists. And I remember that vividly the colloquium you gave it at, 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 at case when I was chair, it was clear that, you know, that, that you enjoyed that, that sense of communication, that ability to do that. And that, and that therefore made you a, a person that, journalists would seek out, which I suppose at times um, in groups of large collaborations, but people might, might, might sometimes feel jealous or at least, or, or some, some sense of that because people were turning to you. But, but in my experience, journalists have turned to people who will talk to them, first of all, who are interested in talking to them and can convey the information. Yeah. I mean, you, you've, you've hit on a number of important topics there and I do love teaching and I, I get a, a lot of joy about it still to this day. Yesterday I was teaching a, a, a fifth grade student about the universe and also how to play tennis. So I remembered <laughs> even yesterday how much I enjoy and really feel it's our obligation as adults to, to be teachers as well. But as you pointed out, when uh, your ability to connect with the with the, the broad audience, when that ability is, is great enough, people do turn to you. And that happened to me. And then I tried hard to make sure my collaborators got as much attention and credit. And I, you know, frankly failed. I mean, I, I know that I tried hard, but I was not able to make sure that my collaborators um, got as much credit, as much attention, got their, their you know, the, the, the um, accolades should have gone more to them. Well, you know, look, I mean, it, it's not, I, it's not your fault in, in, the, in a general sense, because I, I've experienced this. Journalists want to pick an individual and they always, you know, <laughs> you probably had this experience too in the old days, but, but 
they always want to glor they want to make everyone seem like the next Einstein whenever they're a scientist. Yeah. And and so it, it's not and it's and and I'm not criticizing journalists in that sense. People like public interest stories and they want to turn to an individual. So an journalists will naturally sort of hold on to that and try and 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 try and glorify that in the sense because that's that's what captures the story. And often that's what will interest their editors in allowing them to do a story. So it's just yeah. a part of the problem of modern journalism that that um that they don't really convey science for what it really is, which is a team effort right? in many ways. And, and also an effort of baby steps. Every, every new discovery is revolutionary and groundbreaking. And then, as yeah. I say, the next Einstein, and they don't realize that all science is often done by lots of little baby steps, but those, that doesn't make for good headlines or good press or sell newspapers. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's true. It's very tricky. And obviously what you're saying is that the uh, public relations side of science is treacherous. It, it, we are sending, uh, unbeknownst to us, a false message about the process of science, which often involves mistakes, team efforts, um, false starts, blind alleys, and uh, other people helping to redirect and, uh, and, and eventually, hopefully, getting the right answer. Well, look, I don't want to make it seem like it was just a cushy ride for you because it wasn't. And I want to go back. I want to. So you went you went to UCLA, which was your local university or basically. That's right. Yeah. And and did physics and astronomy, right? Yeah, I went back and forth between majoring in physics and astronomy. And eventually I just did both. Yeah. OK. But you but you but astronomy clearly was your passion. I mean, you, didn't, you just had what point was it only into graduate school that you decided you want to do astronomy or. Or what point yeah, did you decide? Well, well, what happened when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I knew I wasn't smart enough to ever be a scientist. And <laughs> I, I just thought I will continue the ride in uh, physics or astronomy as long as the world will let me. And then I'll just have to be thrown out on the street. And I, I was very clear about that. And I applied to graduate schools thinking maybe I'll be able to get a master's degree somewhere. And I applied to both physics programs and astronomy programs. I got into a few of each and, um, I, you know, I just felt lucky that UC Santa Cruz accepted me. A few other places did too. And I, I knew that astronomy was more my passion. So I thought, well, look, if I'm going to fail, that's fine. But um, I'd like to fail enjoying the ride for yeah, the yeah. few years in graduate school. And then I'll go off and try to live a normal life. Well, you know, it's interesting. It, there's an important lesson there in the sense that, that you recognize, which I think is that a lot of people look at the alternatives and don't th and try and judge them. I, I see students all the time trying to judge them in terms of where they're most likely to get a job or the most money or something. And I always say it's just crazy to think of that because, first of all, you never know down the yeah. line what's going to happen. And secondly, if it's not, if you don't choose what you're most passionate about, then you're not going to be, you know, not only you won't be happy, but you probably won't be as good in something else either. So if you choose a career path that you think is safer, oh, yeah. well, it's all right to choose it later, but your whole life doesn't depend upon what you study at school. That's the one time when you can yeah. do what you really care about. And, and, and all the skills you might learn in astronomy or physics or, or anything else or history or anything else will later on be useful to you in whatever, whatever field you. Well, that's study. for sure. And, and I remember thinking, just what you said, I, I want to enjoy a few more years in school before I flunk out. But also, I knew that I was lucky with the education I'd already had. This is what you were saying. Mm -hmm. I did have math. 
Uh, I had taken several years of math at, at uh, the college level, UCLA. I took, you know, many years of physics. I took some chemistry. I, uh, I had s- uh, some computer programming skills. You know, I learned Fortran oh. on my own, but it was not, you know, it's not that big a deal, like how to write an if statement or, a, you know, uh, a, yeah. uh, how, to, how to write an equation down and solve for X. <laughs> so, um, you know, it turns out in the world, if you know English and you know a little bit of math and maybe a little science, you're good to go. You, yeah, you, yeah, can, yeah. You, can, you can live a life that way and have a creative life and a life where you pay the bills. <laughs> okay, well, you you moved to Santa Cruz, which was known for its, um, which has ha- which had a very strong astronomy group and a yeah. reasonable physics group too. And, and I think we've talked about this once, but we must have met, or at least we yeah. must have been in the same room many times because the last year of my PhD, I did my PhD at MIT, but my yeah. supervisor moved to Santa Cruz for that last year of my PhD. And I was, um, and I, and actually I taught a class, um, with George Sand and, and, um, and, uh, a really interesting, um, uh, Matthew Sand, sorry, Matthew Sands, uh, who, who was a fascinating and interesting teacher who was, who had helped write the Feynman, the Feynman books. And, um, and, oh, uh, and great. I sat through, right. yeah, remember him. And, and I sat through many colloquia. I, I didn't, I didn't uh, sit through as many, astro- you know, there weren't separate astronomy ones. I guess there was a physics colloquia. There may have been. I didn't, I began to venture. It was a time in my life when I began to learn more about astronomy. So I heard those things, but we must've been in the same building at the same time. Cause you got, you got your PhD at the same time as I did. And, and there was just one building that had both astronomy and physics. It's yeah. a, that's interesting. That, well, so there we go. We never knew we'd cross paths. It nope. was a, for me, it was in, I, I spent, one term there basically january on oh no no i guess i was no the whole year the whole like a year because i i went there in in september i remember and and that's when i and and i and i had to fly back east for an interview for the harvard job and it and santa cruz for me was a revelation it was very different than anywhere i lived in in in, in cambridge or in, in boston and um but you went from there and you got you got a a, a you know I, I was happy to go move to where i did but you got a nice fellowship at at the carnegie institute which is mount wilson right that's right. Yeah. Exactly. And then, and then you experienced a career issue. And I, I think that I didn't, I wasn't aware of that, but I think that's really important that you not only had it, but how you reacted to it. So maybe you want to talk about that a little bit. Well, I think what you might be referring to is um, when I got to the Carnegie institution, I, I felt like I was surrounded by brilliant astrophysicists and I knew I wasn't. And um, I, I kind of felt like it was a mistake that I had gotten the Carnegie <laughs> Fellowship in the first place. And indeed, my PhD thesis topic, which was to measure the Zeeman effect in stellar spectra, um, was fl- floundering and it, it was it was it had run its course. Um, and I was desperate to find some other type of research to do uh, for my remaining year and a half. And I couldn't think of a good project, and I got more and more depressed and, it was it was pretty serious. I remember waking up in the morning and I felt so terrible I couldn't get out of bed. I just lay wow. there thinking I feel sick and my my head was hurting and I remember asking myself knowing that I was sort of inadequate in this uh, uh, world of Carnegie Institution with Caltech next door. I, I started wondering um, you know whether I was actually suicidal. 
And I remember yeah. asking myself that, am I, am I going to commit suicide? Cause what will my parents think? What will my friends think if I, if I can't succeed as a scientist? And I, I was lucky the health plan they had allowed me to go see a psychotherapist. And I, I went, it was at Kaiser downtown Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for, I don't know, four or five months, I went every week and, and, you know, in brief, the guy I saw, I was lucky. He basically, you know, pulled me out of the depths and he said, look, you know, you've got to have a little more self-esteem and you've got to somehow enjoy the ride and, you know, whatever happens, happens, but uh, you, you, you know, you've got to find some some pleasure in whatever it is you're doing. And, you know, you may end up uh, opening a new chapter later on. And that allowed me to at least survive. Oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's fascinating. Again, it, um, you know, I, there are hard periods in my life, and this is probably worthwhile for students to, to know. I mean, there are hard periods in life. It depends. I mean, graduate school itself can be a very difficult time. I know it was for me in some ways, the feeling of, especially if you come, I, I went to a small school in Canada and suddenly I was doing my PhD at MIT and I, and it was a question of whether, you know, whether I could compete and whether I was good enough. And then, and then the misery of sort of working on, working as a graduate student. And, 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 and as I remember someone saying, there's light at the end of the tunnel, you know, after you get your PhD, but then when you get your PhD, you're, you have to then sell yourself and, and, yeah, and, you do something. and, and <laughs> it's hard. You have a limited amount of time and it's a very stressful period for people. It's stressful. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I had a, I mean, I wasn't in that situation, but I remember, I guess you have, you have two choices. You, you either have the imposter syndrome or Dunning-Kruger syndrome, and it's better to have the imposter syndrome, namely to feel like you, Hey, maybe I shouldn't be here than to not recognize at least your own inadequacies in some ways. And, um, yeah, I remember at Harvard, suddenly for me, it was like I was in the same environment. I was at MIT and yeah. I moved down the street to Harvard and I'd taken most of my classes at Harvard. But suddenly when I got this this fancy fellowship, this Harvard Junior Fellowship, suddenly everyone knew who I was at Harvard. And I was just the same person as I, when I'd been a graduate student. But suddenly I felt like, well, you know, suddenly I'm they know who I am and I'm supposed to be well, but I haven't done anything. <laughs> and. Yeah. And I really, for about six months, I had a really difficult time working because I thought, well, I, I just, mm -hmm. I, I shouldn't be here. And, and then, you know, then I just said, okay, I'll just work. And yeah. but you, you, you recovered from that with the assistance, of course, of some good help, which is important. But I was uh, reading, and again, I don't believe everything I read, uh, <laughs> but um, that, that, you said to someone in the shower or something that you really decided, Hey, if I'm going to fail, I want to do something spectacular. I want to fail spectacularly rather than not, you know, just doing stuff. And, and that, that choice I think is a remarkable one. So maybe you want to go, go into well, it. Well, yeah, I, I, it was a little different than that. I, I do remember very clearly um, standing in the shower one morning, you know, barely able to get out of bed. The, the, the water from mm. the shower is falling over mm. me and I was very depressed. And I thought, I have got to pull myself out of this. I'm obviously going to fail as a scientist. Okay, that's a given. But I still have a year and a half left on this Carnegie Fellowship. So what am I going to do? And I thought, well, great. If I'm going to fail, I might as well try to answer a question that is so meaningful to humanity and, and, and to me as well, that at least I'll go out trying to do something that is has a human component to it, not just 
sort of the physics dry uh, scientific um, aspects. And, and I realized with the water still falling over me that I wanted to know if there were any other habitable worlds out there and if any of those worlds might in fact be inhabited. Um, and I remembered then something that was a failure of mine back in Santa Cruz, which was my advisor, George Herbig, asked me to measure Doppler shifts in stars. And uh, the brief version of the story is I failed at right. that too. I, I tried to measure the Doppler shifts and I came back to him with the results and he said, Jeff, your errors are about three kilometers per second. Why are your errors so large? And I didn't know. And he didn't know, <laughs> which was more impressive, but yeah. I didn't know. And it stuck with me. How can you make a measurement and not know what your uncertainty is? And there in the shower, I realized, okay, if I can measure Doppler shifts more precisely, I can detect the wobble of a star as it's yanked on gravitationally by any planets, but I have to measure Doppler shifts more precisely. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to spend the rest, rest of my time as a postdoc trying to measure Doppler shifts precisely enough to maybe detect the largest types of planets or brown dwarfs. Okay, this is great. So you decided this was a scientific question. And, and again, emerged, I mean, this fundamental question, are we alone in a sense? Yeah. Which, 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 which Sagan, of course, it was, had asked as yeah. well. And many, everyone's asked at some point in their life. Yeah. And it's really bold, but it's not going to be. But the fact you were saying, you know, it's going to be clear that it was not going to be easy. So it was not going to be the type of thing that could be done in a year and a half. But you already chalked off your career. So you said, okay, doesn't yeah. matter. I, I, you know, it's not something I can necessarily get to, but it's what I'm going to try and work on. But before we, but you, you went out, when you went over this, for many people watching this, they will not have the slightest idea what a Doppler shift is. So let's uh, right. uh, uh, uncompact that a little bit. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah. So um, uh, let's, let's, let, let's just describe what, what, why you were, one might want to measure Doppler shifts and what they are. So let's, yeah, I'll give you a chance to start. Yeah. You know, th this is well known to astronomers, but, but it's easy to explain. Um, when a star emits light, that star might be coming at you or moving away from you, and we collect the light from that star. But the light waves get a little compressed if the star is coming at you. And indeed, if the star is going away from you, the light waves get stretched out as the star recedes each time it emits a wave crest. Um, we all know this effect in sound when the... Um, uh, race car goes by you, you hear and so that's the Doppler effect in sound and the same thing happens with light. So you can determine if a star is coming at you or away from you and even more excitingly, you can determine if the star sometimes is coming toward you and then a little later away from you and then toward you and away from you and toward you as the star is being yanked on gravitationally by any planet. So this that, is a way and a well-known way to detect unseen orbiting objects around stars. Had, that, had it been used um, to, to detect uh, uh, binary stars, stars going around each Absolutely, other? Absolutely, going all the way back to the early 1900s. And there were even papers, indeed by a guy named W.W. Campbell, I, I found the paper, where he says, you know, Currently here, and I think it was around 1908 or 1913 or somewhere in there, he said, clearly 
if we could measure Doppler shifts more precisely, we would be able to detect not only small stars orbiting other stars, but we would be able to detect small planets. He actually explicitly said that. So this was a concept known for, uh, you know, 60 years or something prior. And, and this itself, by the way, not only, so Doppler shifts are that, and, and, and it's a different reason for light than sound, but it's the same idea. And we call it a red shift or a blue shift. Right. Red being if the star is moving away from you because the radiation gets stretched out and red is the longer end of the spectrum. And if it goes towards you, blue is a shorter wavelength. And so right. it gets scrunched up. So we call it blue shifts or red shifts. Those are the terms astronomers use. But um, uh, interestingly, within that concept that it also flies when kids go to school, they learn the earth orbits the sun. If they went to go to a reasonable school, especially yeah. since the Copernican revolution. And, uh, and, um, but of course it's not true. It's, it's not the true. earth orbits the sun, but the sun also orbits the earth, but the sun's <laughs> orbit is much smaller than the earth's orbit. The point is they orbit each other. And because yeah. the sun is a lot heavier, a million times heavier than the earth, as the earth goes around the sun, the sun does respond. But this is the point, and this is why I figured it would what you were doing would be never be possible, because the yeah. sun is a million times heavier than the earth, and therefore, in a sense, its response to the force of gravity of the earth pulling on it is is you know at least a million times smaller, and therefore right. the earth goes around the sun. The sun is doing a motion, but the motion is unbelievably slow. And who the heck could do this? I mean, I think our sun. Yeah. Is it, uh, the 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 speed of our sun as it moves in its little mini orbit as the Earth right. goes around it is something like am I right? It's something like 10, 10 meters per second or eight meters per second. Or well, something it, like that. there's two answers here. The Earth, as it goes around the sun, causes the sun to move with a speed in its little mini orbit, yeah. as you called it, yeah. by ten centimeters per second. 10 centimeters per second. Yeah. So in other words, you know, sort of the speed of a caterpillar on a leaf. Basically. Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, I mean, that's the reason I would you say to measure that speed of a star that's about yeah. a thousand light years away to the, you know, to plus or minus 10 centimeters per second. Ridiculous. And I, that's, it's ridiculous. And I want to, re, I want to stress that because that's how bold the, the, the challenge that you decided to face and yeah. why, I, you know, I've talked about this in different contexts. Why as a theorist would have said, no way, am I gonna, no way. I'm not going to try that. I mean, it's just too, it's too difficult. The idea well, of somehow being able to measure a speed that's much smaller than the speed you can walk of a star far away. But you decided to try and do it. And so, and, and, um, you know, it's worth, it's worth mentioning here for, for, for people who are young and thinking of becoming scientists. Uh, it's very helpful to think about challenges in science that seem unreachable to the old folks. Um, but if you have a little bit of a clue about how to do better technically than people did in the past, you can reopen that question. And in my case, I remember telling uh, senior astronomers um, that I was going to search for planets by measuring Doppler shifts. And they were all embarrassed for me. Um, they they literally looked down at their shoes and scuffled their feet. And there was a little faint smile to try to be polite. Uh, but they knew I would fail. And even as recently as, oh, the early 90s, um, uh, you know, my fellow astronomers would look down at their feet and and sort of smile politely. So it was it was just well known, you know, for sent by for the whole century of the 1900s 
that nobody would ever find planets. They just don't have any effect on anything. Okay, and and Supposedly. that was okay. Exactly, <laughs> and I love when conventional wisdom is is uh, is is shown to be wrong. And I think you you made a point, which is another point I try and stress, and we we see in a lot of discussions I've had with scientists, and and which is that, and I've said I've told young experimentalists this as well. Every time we can open a new window on the universe, we're surprised. So science is an empirical discipline. I'm a theoretical physicist, and sure, that, and that gets a lot of attention, you know, all the weird ideas yeah. we come up with. But science is an experimental field. Yeah. It's based on experiment. It's driven by experiment, or in this case, observation. And if you can find a new technique, yeah. use it. It may not. You may not know that, hey, there's no obvious application of this technique, but the history, if history is any guide, if you have a new technique, it's going to be useful somewhere in science. And it's, and it's really, it's really yeah. interesting. Why? And I'm so envious, I guess. Yeah, exactly what you said. And it, we're lucky in astronomy, we ride on the technological advances of the rest of the world. So when they, when the rest of the world invents a new type of camera or a way to form optics, uh, you know, or maybe make larger computers, all of those things allow critical, uh, uh, vital leaps forward in your ability to make the measurements of the universe that simply weren't possible before. Yeah, it's uh, it's truly amazing, and as I say, it sometimes makes me jealous as a theorist that knowing it, you know, the experimentalist who holds, gets a new technique can 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 push it. And but you know, to some extent, this, the same thing happens, but much much less much less often in theoretical physics, you know, Einstein's new technique of geom you know, uh, learning geometry, which he had to learn or Feynman's development of new techniques, but, but, you yeah. know, new, a new observation. And that's why one of the reasons why kids have asked me, you know, what's good field. Well, the one reason astrophysics is a good field is it's a golden era because it's, it seems every year there are new techniques that come up that you allow you to do things you would never have imagined you could have done right. uh, 10 years ago, much less 40 years ago. Yeah, and uh, so you you knew so you started to to go back to you now. You started to look at ways to improve your ability to measure these Doppler shifts from kilometers per second, right, to, to centimeters per second. And for for people, a centimeter is what what one hundredth of a meter, and a kilometer is a thousand meters. So you're talking about improvement of a factor of a hundred thousand. It's not a factor of two or yeah, five right. or hundred thousand. Right. And so what what did you start doing? Well, um. There were several steps that, you know, I never foresaw, but they were turned out in the end to be very important. So there I was, of course, still as a Carnegie fellow using the Mount Wilson 100 inch telescope, the venerable telescope that Hubble had used to discover the expansion of the universe. That's a daunting thing, by the way, to yeah. walk by the locker that says Hubble on it. And <laughs> You know, what happened was I started using the spectrometer that was there and I tried hard to uh, trim all of the errors that I thought were causing the trouble and I identified a few and got the errors down to about 200 meters per second, which was already a factor of about 10 better yeah. than I had been doing while I was a graduate student. And I ran into a uh, really amazingly brilliant astronomer who hardly anybody knows. His name is Roger Griffin. And he said, oh, you know, Jeff, your problem is that when you guide the telescope and put the starlight into the spectrometer, the starlight moves around. 
And so uh, you have to prevent that. So he actually gave me yet another clue that it was the motion of the star image that is a problem. In the mo you mean naming the fact that the, the apparent motion due to the due to jittering of the telescope? Exactly. Yeah. And the right. Earth's atmosphere, which causes by refraction, causes the star to dart around. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's very obvious when you when when someone mm -hmm. tells you that you think, oh, of course, why didn't I think of that? If the star's moving around, the whole spectrum moves around. So it mimics the Doppler shift. <laughs> so, yeah, of course. So I had to so, figure out a way to get around that. And um, I, I'll jump to the next stage, which was really wonderful. And this is a great story in and of itself. There is a an obscure astronomer named Bruce Campbell. Nobody's ever heard of him. He was a postdoc himself. And he and uh, his collaborator, Gordon Walker, invented a new technique to get around this motion of the star. They also realized it. Maybe they talked to Roger Griffin too. Mm -hmm. And what they did was in brief, fill a glass container with hydrogen fluoride gas. And as the starlight passed through the hydrogen fluoride gas, it the, the light from the star picked up additional absorption at specific wavelengths, i.e. colors, specific mm -hmm. wavelengths that indelibly marked the wavelengths right on the spectrum. So even if the whole spectrum Doppler shifted, or sorry, if the whole spectrum shifted inadvertently, those absorption markers due to the hydrogen fluoride gas marked the true wavelengths of the light. And when I learned about Bruce Campbell's idea, I thought we've got to do this and we've got to do it better at least a factor of 10 better than he's doing it. And, and that's what led me to ask the solar physicists what they should do. And uh, a friend of mine, a solar physicist, Dave Bruning, said to me, we use iodine gas. And so I told my student, um, uh, Paul Butler, who was absolutely brilliant, I said to Paul, you know, we should think about iodine. And, and he went off to the library and he checked other molecules and he came back and he said, yep, iodine is the best. So we developed this whole technique that no one ever heard of, of putting iodine gas in a telescope. I mean, it's wow. the craziest thing, but the iodine gas then allowed the starlight to come through and pick up thousands of absorption lines, as we call them, markers in wavelength. And that was the wavelength calibration that allowed us to measure Doppler shifts to within 10 meters a second. Ah, okay. Ah, okay. So that within tens of meters per second. So that, and that, but that idea took time. I mean, the point is, I, I want to go back because Paul Butler was your student at San Francisco State University, right. which at the time was not a major research since you didn't have a PhD program, right? I went you, there because I wanted to be a teacher. Yeah, you went exactly. It was a teaching institution, <laughs> not so much a research institution. So you were cobbling together this kind of effort. And it and, and this is the other important thing. This is, um, what year did you go there? 1982, 83 or 84? 84, yeah. 84. And, yeah. and you're there, you know, for a decade working yeah. on these kind of techniques to try and continue to improve it. Sort of, on, not quite on the side, but I mean, sort of on the side because it's a teaching institution. I, I was teaching three classes every semester. Wow. Um, I, I taught, um, and, and I enjoyed the teaching. As I said, I mean, it was a real pleasure. I, 
I taught electricity and magnetism. I taught statistical mechanics. I taught astrophysics labs. Um, and, you know, that's more or less a full-time job. But of yeah, course, yeah. I worked I worked evenings. I worked weekends. I wasn't yet yeah. married. And so, you know, I had lots of time. And, um, you know, Paul is absolutely brilliant. He's still working uh, to this day. He's He's an incredibly hard worker and very innovative, and he's dedicated to working as hard as he can to get the right answer. And but he, you know, he it, it was a wonderful, out. it was a wonderful, like many things, it was fortuitous collaboration yeah. of a really good student and a, and a dedicated teacher and a, a great scientist yeah. is working hard. But was Putler doing a master's degree because there was no PhD? At, at he was doing at that's right. He was doing two degrees: a bachelor's degree in chemistry. Ah, that's uh, imp- that's important because we needed iodine and yeah. um, a master's degree in physics. I see. Well, it's just a fortuitous. And and then um, and you continue to work. He must have gone on to do a PhD somewhere else while you were working with him. or He did or, at Maryland. At Maryland. Okay. And But your collaboration continued during that period. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so you came upon this new idea and that allowed you to reduce the uncertainty from 200 meters per second to... To 10 meters per second. Yeah. Okay. And now 10 meters per second is already interesting. And I already kind of gave it away in a way because the sun (laughs) doesn't move with respect to the earth very much, but may, but, but the earth and the sun aren't all there is in the universe. There could be other things. And so one could work out that maybe, um, uh, you know, uh, actually let me ask you this question because I used to know the answer and I could work it out. But due to the Jupiter is a thousand times the mass of the Earth, exactly, and it's pulling the Sun therefore uh, more strongly than the Earth is. How much does Jupiter make the Sun move? How so fast Jupiter, it? when it goes around the Sun, takes twelve years, but yeah. it yanks the Sun around at twelve meters per second. Uh-huh. That's a lot. That's a lot more than ten centimeters per second. second. So suddenly, meters course- per second. And this was, you know, this was a breakthrough for, for, for Paul and me, because we knew that our Doppler precision was 10 meters a second. We could tell if a star was a coming or a going at 10 meters a second and a Jupiter like planet around another nearby star would cause that star to move at 12 meters per second. So we would just barely be able to detect Jupiter analogs around other stars. Except, of course, you'd have to uh, you'd have to have a pretty long career because the other uh, problem is that if you're looking for repetitive motion and the orbit is 12 years, yeah. you want to see a bunch of orbits. You've already got two orbits take 24 years. Yeah. That's a long time to get data. And, and so you, And you, you need two orbits because one nobody one orbit goes by, nobody will believe your results. So so the most important ingredient I used to say uh, was not the telescope or the iodine or the computers or the technique. It was tenure. Yeah, that's right. It was tenure. It's the fact that you could, once you had tenure, you could afford to work on a project for 20 years. And I think people don't realize yeah. how important that is, is the yeah. idea that, that um, you know, you, you for some things, you can have a breakthrough right away. Other things require decades of work. And it just yeah. depends upon the, the field. I, I, I don't know if ever... You know, I ever told you a story. Uh, I'm sure I've said it to someone else about maybe on this program about Dirac, who was a very obviously one of the smartest physicists <laughs> of the 20th century, but also very laconic and did not talk. And um, and when he went to do a postdoc, um, uh, I think I, I think it was with Bohr and and um, and uh, and um, Bohr asked his supervisors, uh, I think it was 
think it was that way. Um, back at, I think he did his work at Cambridge. You know, this guy's, he sits in his office. He, he you know, he doesn't, he hasn't done anything. And, 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 and then there, some, the, the, the supervisor told a story about this, this parrot that, that in a store that's being sold. And I, I won't go into, it's a good, jo- it's a good joke, but basically this guy goes in the store, wants to buy a bunch of parrots and there's beautiful parrots are worth $500. And, and then there's this ugly parrot sitting in the corner. And he says, what about that one? He goes, Oh, let's not talk about that one. And he keeps all the, so finally he convinces him, what about this parrot? Does it, how many words does it speak? Oh, none. You know, well, it's not very pretty. Well, what's its price? Oh, it's $500,000. And the guy goes, what? It's, it's not pretty. It doesn't talk. And the guy goes, yeah, but that parrot thinks. <laughs> and so I think the point is that, you know, sometimes we, one of the problems of our educational system in a way with the postdoc system is that, is that. Uh, and happily tenure helps with that, but you got to get to tenure is the fact that some project problems are so difficult that it takes a yeah. long time to make a breakthrough. And, and, and unless that's appreciated, it's hard. And with our publish and pair or parish society, yeah. it's really, yeah. it's really difficult, but luckily you had tenure at this teaching institution and we're right. able to say, what the heck, I'm just going to plug away. Exactly. And you plugged yeah. away and, and, and for a decade or more, yeah. and then there was a race and then, and then you, you know, what happened? Talk to me about 1995 well, and, and you know, that period. People then. think it was a race, but we all thought we were going to fail. You know, nobody thought we would actually discover planets. My my good friend Gibor Basri um, at UC Berkeley um, would say to me, you know, look, you know, he was trying to calm me down and, and mm-hmm. temper my 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 uh, probable disappointment. And, and he would say, you know, sh- you know, surely you realize you're not going to find any planets. And, you know, he was right in a way, you know, it was a long shot. And after s- decades of people failing to discover planets, why should, you know, why should we be able to do it suddenly out of nowhere? And of course, I would explain to him, we've, you know, trimmed our Doppler errors and so on. But but there was still a widespread um, uh skepticism that planets would ever be discovered. And so it wasn't really a race. There were actually many groups. Um, There was a great group at Harvard, another one at Texas led by Bill Cochran, um, uh, a guy named Bob Noyes at the Smithsonian Institution, Mm -hmm. working on a brilliant, wonderful man. uh, And um, our little fledgling group at Little San Francisco State and I knew of the group in Geneva because I had read the papers by Michel Mayor and I had met his student, Didier Collot, at a meeting in uh, Garking, in Germany. Um, and so, you know, I knew that there was interest in measuring Doppler shifts more precisely at these different places. But, you know, we were all just piddling along um, in, yeah, until, 1990, until 1995. Yeah. And then, and then, and then the world changed, not because of a new technique, which you guys had developed, but because of the fact the world was stranger than you thought it was, which is the other wonder, which is the other wonderful thing about the world. Just hold on though. Cause I want to turn off this light to see if it affects uh, the buzz I'm hearing, but, and, okay. and, and, and I'll tell Corey yeah. to edit this part out. So I'll be right back. Hold on. Sure. It didn't, but it made it cool. Making it, it, it didn't, but it's making it cooler for me. So we'll go back. The buzz might be on my end. So it's all um, right. No worries. Well, uh, now, so the world, as I say, the world 
turned out to be stranger. That was the other gift. We, I mean, there's two great gifts for scientists, new techniques and the fact that nature has a greater imagination than we do. And no one, <laughs> right. when I, you know, when, when, when I was younger, when thinking about other solar systems and estimating the probability of life, you know, the natural thing is to assume we all, and it's, and it's the reasonable assumption is that you're typical, is that your situation is typical. Yeah. So absolutely. that if you're, so that if you want to, if you want to investigate situations you haven't seen, to assume if you're looking out into the unknown that 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 what you you're that you can base things on your circumstances, and it turns out we're not typical. So talk about that remarkable dis discovery, which suddenly which occurred, in you know for for a bunch of you that yeah. taught you that hey things aren't what we thought. Well, um, I'll I'll back up and remind and restate what you said. Um, there were people who worked on the theory of planet formation and their job was to determine what planetary systems might be like around other stars. And they used theory, how dust and gas collects gravitationally and uh, coagulates into planets. One of the most famous was by a guy named Alan Boss. And he predicted that Jupiter like planets would all form at Jupiter like distances mm -hmm. around their stars. And it was a very formal theory with hydrodynamics and gravitational forces and, and you know, hydrodynamic waves uh, traveling through the gas. And, and he predicted that Jupiter's, sure enough, would form so far away from the star that they would look a lot like our own Jupiter. Well, with that as the backdrop, of course, Paul Butler and I were tooling along, improving our technique, thinking that the orbital periods would be 10 years or 12 years. That's, that is, that's how long it would take the Jupiters to go around. And one day I got an email in 1995, October 1995, I got an email from a physicist named Phil Morrison. Now, um, you might know Phil, but nobody... Not, Philip, not the Philip Morrison. The, the, the Phil Morrison. Yeah, and was and one. he was on leave at Edinburgh, and he oh. sent me a, a nice email. This is, again, October 95. He sent me a nice email saying, Jeff... I've just gotten a rumor that someone is going to announce the discovery of the first planet ever. Uh, it's Michel Mayor giving a talk in Florence, Italy. Do you know anything about this rumor? And I didn't, but I immediately thought to myself, first, here we go again. Another false claim of a planet yeah. found like Barnard's star. But mm -hmm. my second thought was, wait a minute, I know Michel Mayor. He's one of the most careful observational astronomers ever. And so if anybody might have it right, it might be Michel Mayor. He gave the talk in Florence. He announced the planet. It was denounced immediately by most of the astronomical community. They said that he had fooled himself. The star was either pulsating or maybe it was wobbling in a face-on orbit due to a stellar companion. Um, but it was very lucky what happened. Um, Paul Butler and I had telescope time at the Lick Observatory five days in the future. Um, and just by sheer luck, we had four consecutive nights on that telescope. And the supposed orbital period of this supposed planet around 51 Pegasi was four days. So here we just happened to have telescope time uh, it, the, later in the week with a string of nights exactly equal to the duration of the supposed orbit of this planet. Of course, we were also lucky it was clear 
every single mm -hmm. night. Yeah. We got Doppler measurements every night. Paul worked the computer and measured the Doppler shift. And by the end of the four nights, we saw exactly the wobble, a sine wave mm -hmm. in uh. Doppler shift up yeah. and down at the end of the four nights, bang on what the Swiss team, uh, Michel Mayor and Didier Collot had said. And I remember to this day, Paul and I drove off the mountain, uh, Mount Hamilton, uh, where we had used the telescope, and we were just silent. We were both um, astonished and really ecstatic that somehow the first planet had been found and we had been fortunate enough to play a role in confirming it. Uh, you know, that's one of the wonderful things that I think about you having come to know you, Jeff, is that generosity of spirit. Uh, well, I remember when I first heard about this, I, I heard that your first response was ecstasy. And I'll, it wouldn't have been the first response of a lot of people, uh, I, I think. <laughs> you know, um, uh, uh, you know I, it's, it's, it, takes a, it takes a big sign. I remember when, of course, when the, when, um, when the cosmic wave background was discovered, the people who were really looking for it were, 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 you know, didn't get to see it first. Uh, Jim Peebles and and Wilkinson and um, and the the leader of it, who's the one of the greatest uh, um, experimental physicists around. Who who who's oh my god, my name is he's gone for a moment. Anyway, um, but I you know, and these guys at Bell Labs had accidentally discovered it. And I remember him, uh, the leader of that group of of Peebles and Wilkinson and, uh, was um, oh why is my my mind oh he's a great scientist. Um, He's and the one I, that did gravity experiments. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but anyway, he, uh, anyway, um, it'll come to me again when we're Wasn't talking. Wasn't he uh, Virginia Trimble's husband? No, no, not that guy. No, oh, no, okay. no, not that guy. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, he was a. This was a truly. He was a truly fantastic <laughs> experimentalist. Make breakthroughs in a wide variety of things, and people don't uh, know who he is, and I feel bad that I. Yeah. The moment, but um, anyway, uh, the um. Uh, he came in and said, Hey guys, we've been scooped. And it was like with a smile and they were gracious about it and they were great scientists. Mm -hmm. But, but the fact that you felt ecstatic, I, 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 again, you know, I remember, um, yeah, I remember in, in various times of my own career, you know, when I'm working on something and you discover, and you're writing a paper, you discover someone else has just written it. The feeling is not always ecstasy. And so I think it's wonderful right. that you felt it wonderfully a part of it. But the point then is that it wasn't as if you could just be observers literally where you were observers, but not observing the phenomena elsewhere. Because you developed these techniques, not only could you immediately confirm that, but you became the leaders in discovering new planets. I mean, I think something yeah. like 70 of the first 100 planets right. that were discovered were discovered by you guys, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. We were lucky because our technique using iodine gas really was fantastic, and um, it offered a higher Doppler precision than the Swiss team had. And so, you know, it was, it was kind of a shared joy because we could contribute so many of the next planets confirming the types of orbits, the eccentricities, some of the planets were in close. And of course, that's the strange thing about 51 yeah. Pegasi was four day orbital period, whereas our own Jupiter takes 12 years to go yeah, around that's the sun. That's so, that know, I, I mean, I, we, I, I, you're right. I passed over that. I was going to get to it, but the fact that that fact, you know, we almost just, it came upon as a side thing. Yeah. The pl the period is four days. Well, that's not surprising, but of course it is. The earth's period yeah. around the sun is a year. And here's a Jupiter object going around the sun in four days, which means right. it's far closer to its 
star than right. than, than than Mercury is. It's unbelievably close. It defied all the wisdom of what makes a solar system a solar system. And the first calculation I did, uh, which is what anybody would do, is you would ask, is a Jupiter that's that close to its star yeah. stable? M yeah. Maybe it'll heat up and evaporate away. So you can quickly do that calculation uh, of the, th the thermal equilibrium of the planet and what the, uh, you know, the escape velocity from the gravity of the planet, and you can calculate how much of the gas is going to escape every year and how much will be left after a billion years. And sure enough, the planet is stable. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Again, it's another thing. If you asked my gut feeling, I would have said such a planet that close would not be stable. The, right. the tidal forces would strip it. By the way, I remember the guy's name. It's Bob Dickey, of course. Oh, Bob and, Dickey, and yeah. He was I probably he... one. He, he, but he, Dickey, Wilson, Peebles, and Wilkinson were the ones who were... And they were all, each each one, a truly great scientist. It's one of the sad things in a way that that, yeah. um, that they, they passed away. Well, that they didn't get that particular Nobel Prize. Not that it matters, but... Dickey yeah. is an amazing, was an amazing man. But anyway, so go back to yep. this, yep. the fact that the, the fact that another surprise, not only that it, it, that it was there, but it, that it could be stable there. And then the question is how the heck did it get there in the first place? And, and, um, and that originally, and so it's not only, I mean, confirming the existence of a planet around a star is one thing, although I, I think it's fair to say, I know at least from my own experience around that time, that astrophysicists all suspected there were lots of planets around lots of stars. If you if you make stars on a computer, they you get this accretion disk and it fragments. Right. And generally, you're going to expect a solar system, but no one had ever seen it. But so just seeing a planet around a star is maybe it's a remarkable observational discovery. But you might not be surprised. But this discovery at the same time revolutionized the thinking about solar systems. It was two things at once, and it was uh, well. Let, let's back up a little bit because I'd like to just offer a slightly uh, different um, uh, rendering of history. Um, good. When that discovery was made, um, very few astronomers believed it. Sure. Um, I, I can tell you many stories, visits to Caltech, where astronomers would draw me aside and say, you know that 51 Pegasi discovery is not right. And here's what they said. They, they said, first of all, um, the, the uh, pl so-called planet might have actually been a small star in a face-on orbit, so nearly face-on that the Doppler shift, which only accounts for the motion toward you or away mm -hmm. from you, is very small, not because the object orbiting is small, mm -hmm. but because the orbit is so face-on that the star is hardly wobbling to and fro. So that was a very widely espoused um, theory for 51 peg. Another theory was that the star itself was pulsating, getting bigger and smaller and bigger and mm. smaller. So you would see the Doppler shift. The, we went for two years with many people thinking one or the other of those was the right answer. And indeed, there was an interferometer, so-called, on Mount Palomar that made measurements of 51 peg and saw it wobbling as if it really was a face-on orbit. Uh, oh. We, you know, when I learned that, I was sure it was wrong. But I was probably the only person, and I can tell you why I was sure it was wrong. But it, it just it, it it gave everybody an excuse to say, ah, fifty-one Pegasus wrong. And I'll tell you one last thing: um, the paper that Michel Mayor and Didier Collot sent to Nature about the discovery of fifty-one Peg mm -hmm. was was rejected. Yes. The paper was rejected. And um, 
I learned about this. I was not the referee. I can I can tell you. I know who it was. And um, the referee correctly, I think, or at least consistent with the sociology of the time, said, look, this is not an adequate uh, defense of the claim that it's a planet. Now, of course, five days later, Paul and I went up to the telescope and we saw the same effect. And that doesn't prove that it's a planet. It still yeah. could be a face on orbit yeah. or pulsation. But at least it gave nature the impetus. So, of course, the journalists descended on um, on Paul and me. We told we showed them our Doppler shift measurements and nature changed its tune. And they published the paper by the Swiss team, which, of course, was the correct thing. I remember some it's a cute little story. Michel Mayor was panicking because he learned that we had found the wobble effect. Mm-hmm. And he called me on the phone from Geneva. And there I was in, in Berkeley at the time. And he called me up and he said, Jeff, I, I have a, a, a very urgent uh, uh, request for you. Uh, would you please not publish your paper? Uh, Nature is refusing to publish the paper. Uh, would you please just not publish the paper until we can publish our paper? And of course, I said, of course, Michelle, no problem. No, not that we wouldn't even dream of doing this. So, so, you know, it was just a cute moment. And what was interesting, I, if I don't, if you don't mind my droning a bit, was we went for two years with most of the astronomy community doubting that this was really a planet. And that's science at its best, yeah. right? You make an extraordinary claim. We started finding planets and the community dragged its feet until they got better confirmation. Well, extraordinary claims as, and it wasn't Carl Sagan, the first person to say this, but he popularized it. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so it's not, you know, people may say, oh, scientists are closed-minded, but, but, but it's reasonable to be skeptical. Most exciting new discoveries are wrong. And, and, and if they weren't, we'd be getting one a day, you know, and, and, and so it's reasonable. But what, what ultimately caused a sea change? Was it the fact that you discovered 70 of these? You see, one, one observation can always be anomalous. You yeah. know, one observation could be a system which is accidentally face-on. But 70 of them, it's not likely you're going to get that same accident. What well, caused that sea change in the community? So there were two breakthroughs. Um, David Black, who doubted the planets, said to me um, in Houston... Um, I will never believe these are planets until you find at least two of them going around a star. Planets come in groups. Yeah, maybe there was a protoplanetary disk, but if these are really planets that you think you're finding, there should be two or three or four until you find a system. Um, I'm not going to believe these are more like binary stars where the second star is a puny one. And then luckily in uh, 1998, we did discover a triple planet system around Upsilon Andromeda. Uh, it was wonderful. We found one planet, then we found a second, then a third. We worked with the Harvard team on this. It was great. And those three planets, I think, offered a lot more assurance that these planets we were finding were at least kin, maybe not close kin, but kin of the planets in our own solar system. The real breakthrough actually occurred in 1999 when we finally found one planet that we had been anticipating that orbited the star and crossed in front of the star, dimming it. And that cinched it. When, and that was Greg Henry, by the way, who made that discovery. 
and uh, Dave Charbonneau uh, made it independently. Uh, when Greg and Dave found that transiting planet, um, it was HD 209458, for those of you who are interested. <laughs> um, you know, you'll, I'll never forget it, because when we saw, we predicted when the dimming would occur. Imagine you make Doppler measurements, yeah. you know the, the yeah. so-called ephemeris. You know yeah. when that planet should be in front. And Greg Henry did the photometry, measured the brightness, and the star dimmed exactly when and by the amount that it should have if it was a Jupiter crossing in front. So you, that removed all doubt. You know, it's interesting. You know, you just you, you anticipated where I was going to go next because <laughs> no, no, it's great. And and that's first of all, that's a new technique, right? You have the it technique was. of the wobble, and then you have another technique which I also would have said and not yeah. believed. I remember I think the first time I saw it, I probably didn't believe it either. Because I would have said, Pashaw, you can't measure a star moving at the same speed a a, a sprinter yeah. is moving. 10 meters right. per second. Right. Then I would say, look, this puny little planet in front of a star is going to dim it by a little bit, but stars are variable and they, who would right. believe that you could do that? And so it's another technique that again, as an outside ignorant theorist, I would have said, ha, no way. But then, but the fact well, that, it, but again, the fact, I think the point was that not only did it happen, but it happened with a kind of regularity that was exactly what you predicted, I think is the yeah. more important aspect. Well, and, you know, again, um, it's probably worth going back because this is, I hope, inspirational for young scientists. In retrospect, the Doppler shift we measured for some of the planets was so large, it could have been done in the 1960s. It's uh -huh. just that nobody expected Jupiter-sized planets that close to the star. And similarly, when a Jupiter goes in front of a star and blocks some of the starlight, it dims the star by 1%. Okay, 1% is a small number, but it's measurable. So in fact, in the 1960s, people could have di discovered planets. You would have had to look at a few thousand stars, but sooner or later, you would have seen one that dimmed due to its planet. Actually, that's probably, well, you know, that's an interesting thing, which probably it's not so much the telescope capabilities as computational capabilities. One of the things that was a big development, which came Huge. in the 70s, 80s, 90s, was the ability to look at a thousand stars, not just one star. The ability right. to, you know, to do that with the optics and the computer technology. So you I needed, think that's an important... Com computers were critical. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't that, you know, you could have done it by an accident of discovery, but having to look at a thousand stars was simply impossible in the 1960s yeah. and 70s. Well, and, it's, uh, it's, a little, it's a little more than that because I have, I've glossed over this point, but the spectrum, when we spread the light out from the star from blue, green, yellow, and red, all the wavelengths, we actually spread it out into about 10,000 individual units of wavelength. And I have to give credit to uh, Steve Vogt, who was at UC Santa Cruz, designed and built the spectrometer that we first used at Lick Observatory. So, you know, without Steve Vogt building that spectrometer, we never would have we never would have had a chance. A combination. Well, the, being in the right place at the right time is a, it's a large part of science as well. But taking advantage, <laughs> taking advantage of that moment is, is sometimes what makes one special. Yeah. Um, now, so suddenly there's a new technique, which is really neat because now you have two techniques, independent techniques for looking planets. And I think the important thing is, again, a strange observation, it can be strange and usually wrong, but when you predict it, and it's exactly what you predict. It gives you a great deal more confidence that you're not yeah. seeing something anomalous. Huge. Something I talk about in terms of, uh, 
by the way, in climate change, it's not just that the, you know, the temperature is rising. It's exactly what you predict from fundamental physics. And that gives you great confidence. But, but now two things. Suddenly, a Jupiter that's orbiting a star is observable. But really, what was interesting to you when you first had that moment in the shower was not Jupiter's, but the question, well, maybe Jupiter's, because we know so little about life in the universe that who knows. But, but like the, the, the drunk in a, in, coming out of a bar, you look f- where you lost your keys under the lamppost. The simplest right. thing to look for is Earth-like planets. And that's what everyone, that's, that's where the, the money is and the, and the, and the interest is. And, and yeah. um, so right. take me through... So the, that new observational technique also led to the development of a, of a new observatory, but, uh, uh, but, but also, in principle, allow you to, to, I think, to go to lower, lower size, smaller size planets than you could just using Doppler shifts alone. Is that right? Yeah. So there were two stages here. One was that the Swiss team, uh, led by Michel Mayor and Didier mm-hmm. Collot, um, improved their spectrometer. And I would say by around 20, 2005, 2010, they were, their spectrometer was, was producing superior Doppler shift measurements to what we could do. And um, that's just the truth of it. I can tell you mm. technically what they mm. did, and it was brilliant. Um, but it was so good that they started finding Neptune-sized planets and planets that were five times uh, and ten times the mass of the Earth. Okay, they weren't Earth-sized quite, but they weren't Jupiters either. They were smaller and smaller Mm -hmm. planets, and we were starting to find them too, but the Swiss team was doing a better job. And it gave us a, a hint uh, they wrote a couple of papers about this. It gave us a hint that there might be even smaller planets. And then the second big breakthrough, uh, frankly, was um, the advent of two spaceborne telescopes, one by Europe called Coro, and then the really great one uh, launched by NASA called Kepler. Ke- which Kepler was designed to look at uh, something like 100,000 stars in a exactly. small region of the galaxy and to look at them every night to look for specifically this occlusion, this, 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 uh, dimming or periodic dimming. And it, and it was the first time that's, you know, a, a systematic planet finding capability at a statistical level was possible, not just a random luck here or there, but where you could, where you could, um, definitively look at large systems and begin to get the statistics of planets, yeah. which of course, and like the statistics of many things, they're skewed, right? You could, I remember I'd give public lectures and I'd show all the planets that were discovered and you'd see a lot of Jupiters nearby planets and you'd say, well, maybe most planets are Jupiters nearby their sun. But of course, right. you realize there's what's called a selection effect. It's the looking under the lamppost. The easiest ones to find are Jupiter's nearby stars. And let's face it, in the life, the Earth goes around the sun once a year. So to even even if you could measure that few centimeters per year or the occlusion of the Earth around the sun, you'd right. have to measure many years. And so if a system, if a, if a telescope is only up for two or three or four years, you're not right. going to see systems that have periods of tw- 10 or 20 years. Right, yeah. And, and it's worth pointing out that um, this space-borne telescope called Kepler, um, uh, funded uh, by NASA, was led by one individual. And, and I only bring this up because it shows, again, the struggle of science. 
Um, he wrote multiple proposals. His name is Bill Baruki at uh, NASA Ames Research Center. Uh, he wrote multiple proposals to NASA stating that a space-borne telescope would be able to watch the brightness of stars, indeed 100,000 stars, and measure the brightness so precisely that even a tiny Earth-sized planet crossing in front of the star would dim the star by a measurable amount. And what is amusing and, of course, telltale is that Despite several proposals being turned down, Bill Baruki continued to write proposals to NASA headquarters, and eventually they said yes. And that led to the Kepler mission and the discovery of now about 4,000 planets, most of which are about the size of the Earth. Yeah, no, it's an amazing, see, again, a sea shift, shift. And, and it has, of course, caused a great deal of excitement. Because yeah. you say, we now know that Earth-like planets are not rare. And in fact, right. you, with Kepler, you and a student, I think, wrote a key paper, yeah. which won a big prize because you were the, am I wrong? Or the first people yeah. to kind of estimate the likelihood of finding Earth-like planets. Yeah, there were several groups uh, chipping away, but really the, the key one was uh, by Eric Pettigura, who's a brilliant astronomer now. He was my... PhD student, and now he's at UCLA as a uh, as a professor. And Eric, <laughs> the tour de force, I can't even begin to describe, but it was an amazing tour de force. He simulated the errors, the systematic effects, uh, the selection effects, the, the uh, sensitivity to Earth-sized planets. All of that went in, and then he reanalyzed himself personally all of the data. I mean, wow. we're talking about years, four years of data from the Kepler uh, telescope wow. and found all the planets himself with his own code. And then we published a paper with Andrew Howard and myself. Uh, and Eric, of course, was first author and, uh, as you say, received a prize for determining what fraction of stars in the night sky have Earth-sized planets in Earth-like orbits so that those planets would be lukewarm, allowing water to be in liquid form. The first, basically, the first, re I mean, people had estimated, it's easy to make an estimate, especially if you don't have any data. <laughs> and, yeah. But, but so people had speculated about Earth-like planets and how, how, how unique we are and all that. But this was the first time one had data to actually make a statistical analysis that gave you uncertainties and estimates yes that told you, hey, habitable planets yeah. might not be rare. And by habitable, all we mean, or all that is traditionally means, is, hey, there's water and, 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 a gravi and, and gravity that isn't too large, the combination of the two. And, um, and, and that estimate yeah. that you guys made, in some sense, laid the basis for much of the excitement that is now what is called the field of astrobiology. Well, Which, and, you know, it's worth it's worth recapping that, uh, first of all, um, our Milky Way galaxy in which we live has about 200 billion stars and our universe as a whole has hundreds of billions of galaxies, each one of which is roughly like our Milky Way. And what we learned was that something like 10 to 20 percent of those stars have Earth sized planets in 
habitable-like orbits. And so if you do the math, 10% of 200 billion stars, you quickly see that there's something like tens of billions of lukewarm Earth-sized planets out there. Um, is- and by the way, one last news note, we still have never confirmed that there's actually water on those planets. Yeah. So there's probably water because let's let's be fair, hydrogen atoms and oxygen atoms are among the most common atoms in the universe. They're going to combine to make H2O. Nonetheless, it would be nice to confirm, has not yet been done, that there are standing lakes and oceans on these so-called Earth-like planets. I think you, you again, you, you, you lead me to where I was going to go in this regard, which is great, um, because I'm going to make a statement which is going to cause some people to be, you know, to be concerned. Uh, I read uh, astrobiology is a field which has, one could say, more hype and less substance than many other fields, and and by that I don't mean to want to put down the people who are working in it. What I mean is we read about habitable planets and discoveries of potential life. We do, when people talk about the level of our knowledge is so little that to make the claims that are made that are often attributed to astrobiology is, you know, it, I understand the enthusiasm, but it's not supported by the science. And I, while there's a great deal of money and attention that's being framed there, one of the examples I just give is, hey, the Earth is an Earth-like planet. But for some period of its history, it was frozen solid. It all depends upon the distribution of of continents around the Earth, as well as a few other things. So when when the Earth's continents were right, so the albedo of the Earth was such, well, the Earth froze over. And so when people talk about habitable planets and Earth-like planets where we don't even know that there's water, but even if there is, we don't know if the continents are such that the, that, that, that the planet actually has liquid water, there are huge leaps of the imagination. And then claims about, well, maybe life has you know, occurred here or there or there or there because in, in extreme environments, maybe it's here or there, when we don't yet know the origin of life on Earth is yeah, a huge I- leap. And There's I think it's really important for people to realize that I, I just want to moderate. I've, I, you know, that that hype should be taken with many grains of salt. And uh, you know, there are I'll, there's a specific example of what you're talking about. I'll mention our Earth has some amount of water. Much of it is locked into the mantle of the interior of the Earth. We know that there are many oceans worth of water locked into the mantle in hydrated minerals. Um, So you might ask, why do we have oceans on the earth? Well, the answer is we have so much water associated with the earth that not only does the mantle have water, but some of it leaks up to the surface and puddles into oceans and lakes. Well, that's great. But what if the earth had had a little bit more water? Well, then there'd be so much water, the whole thing would be covered. Look, the continents are only, you know, uh, some tens of thousands of feet high, Mount Everest, you know, mm-hmm. 20,000 feet high or so. It wouldn't take very much water to cover the earth. So the earth could either have been formed with too little water, in which case the, it would all be in the mantle soaked into the sponge of the interior of the earth, or the earth could have been made with too much water. And somehow we're lucky to have continents and oceans. And let's be clear, 
if the earth only had an ocean covering it and no continents, it would be difficult to build rockets, computers, electronics. You couldn't even build a violin in water yeah. and have it work. Yeah, no, ex exactly. You could have you could have intelligent dolphins, but um, but yes. you know, un unless they're unless they're a product of a of a hyper intelligent civilization and they leave the earth and say thanks for all the fish, um, uh, right. it, it, they, you know, yeah, no, I th it's really important to realize that 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 a water planet, while everyone loves the idea of water, a water planet will not produce. If you're interested in intelligent life, as opposed to microbial life or right. even animals which could exist in water. Um, and and uh, the, right the, the, way earth... this, the right way to say this is uh, technological life. Because yeah, yeah, as yeah. you point out, marine mammals could in fact be even more intelligent, certainly socially more intelligent mm -hmm. than we humans. But technology, uh, you know, building uh, mechanical devices, electrical devices, uh, computing devices, uh, never mind telescopes and rocket ships, really requires dry land. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, and yeah, it's true. Octo octopuses or octopi, I guess is the word, mm -hmm. uh, are very right. intelligent as are, as are, as are dolphins. But, but there's another factor too. I mean, one could write science fiction stories about this. And that's the point. I think people should realize a lot of what is claimed to be science right now is science fiction in this era area. It's incredibly important because of their new techniques that we're developing to, yeah. to be on the threshold of discovering the possible existence of life elsewhere, any kind right. of life elsewhere, which is a great discovery, but take the claims with a grain of salt. But nothing <laughs> that's relevant, and as I say, if you're going to write a science fiction story about, about intelligent animals or at least some kind of social intelligence in the ocean is if you've ever been scuba diving, you can't see out there very much. And so right. the, 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 they're not so, it's not so obvious that they're aware that there's a universe outside that ocean. Um, uh, because of the refraction of light. And right. so, um, you know, there are many things. So, and, but again, you know, even if you had continents, you have to have them in the right distribution to have water. And you also yep. have to have a, you also have a stuff to have a star that's quiescent and lots of other things. For example, oh, yeah. many of the habitable oh, yeah. planets are yep. around star. They're discovered because they're close to their stars and they can only be close to their stars and habitable because the stars are much less massive than our sun. And therefore, you can be much closer without the water boiling off. But if you're much closer, you're subject to other aspects of your stars. If there's a flare or some other things right. that could kill off life, so, so yep. th this, the, 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 there's a lot of work in, in in what's called astrobiology about habitable planets that I think people. It's incredibly exciting the techniques that are we're developing, but people have to be wary. Of what of what they read and, as they always and have even you know the the rare earth uh, uh, hypothesis as it's sometimes <laughs> called yeah. mm -hmm. includes some obscure aspects like our moon, which yeah. orbiting the earth stabilizes the spin axis yeah. against precession. So how many you know earth like planets in an earth like orbit do not have a fairly massive moon close enough to stabilize the spin axis? Mm of that Earth-like planet. You start adding all these factors, or I should say multiplying these factors together, and you start worrying that the number of truly habitable planets for long enough for Darwinian evolution to do its thing and produce technological life, it might be that the galaxy is filled with a few dozen of these or a few thousands of these, but not billions. Yeah, I think the point is, uh, my attitude has always been, I'm I, I'm pretty convinced by these factors that intelligent life is extremely rare, 
but with 200 billion solar systems, um, rare can still produce a lot of stuff. And that's the wonderful there, thing about science. And, there, and you know, but lots of, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, it goes back. I, I, you probably know Frank Drake yourself. I knew him and, and sure. as well and, 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 and lovely guy, but, but people seem to think that there's a lot of content. Uh, the Drake equation is a Drake equation. Isn't an equation. It's just a parameterization of our ignorance right. and saying, let's guess how many intelligent civilizations are and you multiply a whole bunch of probabilities each of which you know almost nothing about and you can right. come up anywhere from one or zero to a billion and i think that the point i'm trying to say is it's a field remember how i said with just one star of course and one planet a lot of possibilities are you need to discover a lot more things we're in a field we have zero we have yet to know anything experimentally right about these planets, and therefore we have zero empirical data, and therefore any claim of, of about the likelihood or not likelihood of habitable life or or where it's likely to form is just pure hypothesis right now, and, and it's a field with, with lots of, obviously there's lots of ideas, and I've thought about them, and so have others, and you have, and, and there's lots of, lots of new techniques, but right now there's no data, and with no data, um, you probably it deserves a little less hype except for you know every time we discover new what the, the discovery of new planets which you which you pioneered has been the data that's driving at least the the next generation of experiments which may allow us to get some signals for life and maybe we should talk about then what's next because i know you pioneered you know worrying about the terrestrial planet finder oh before i get there I, something okay. else i didn't know about you that you're a poet i did not know that and i was <laughs> i, I I heard something about when Kepler died or something like when the, when that satellite died that you wrote a poem, which I am not going to read, but I did find yeah. it. Um, and I, so I'm do you a, often I'm write poetry? Poet. I, I took a very well-known uh, poem and recast it for our beloved Kepler that had died. And what was interesting, uh, it really did bring tears to my eyes and, and others because Kepler was, I think, one of the most profound experiments that humanity's ever done. And interestingly, uh, NASA's engineers brought Kepler back to life. They mm -hmm. actually figured out a way to use solar radiation and the pressure to reorient Kepler and overcome its hobbled uh, state. So, it, you know, <laughs> the poem was uh, was premature. Okay. That's all right. Well, the poem can never be premature. It can just reflect the, the, um, the feelings of the moment. And... Um, um, and, and I, I'd like to go back, if you wouldn't mind, to something just just to touch sure. up your astrobiology uh, rant there. OK, um, sorry. <laughs> I, I, better me than you. Better I get the hate mail. Exactly. Anyway. Well, let's let's look at the positive side here. Um, NASA and ESA are planning missions to Mars, to the giant moons of Jupiter uh, to uh, Titan, the large moon around Saturn, and also Enceladus. Now, mm -hmm. these moons uh, are easily explored robotically. Yeah. Uh, it, you can send a mission up for something like $3 per American. Uh, and that means you can go and sample the water that we know is there on all of those bodies I just sure. mentioned, uh, and look for bacteria. So, you know, in terms of the pessimism that you very rightly uh, articulated, there is an experimental solution 
uh, within our lifetimes, which is to send probes, uh, examine the, the water literally for uh, microbial life. And look, in, in um, 30 or 40 years, we will have visited all of the objects I just mm. mentioned, Mars, Jupiter's mm. moon, Saturn's yeah. moons, a few others. And frankly, we're going to know whether or not the origin of life happened on any of them. Okay, That'll be you know, cool. Yeah, That's no, cool. yeah, I, of course. In fact, I'm a big supporter. I think you misinterpreted. I'm not pessimistic. I'm optimistic. <laughs> I, I'm optimistic because every time you know nothing, there's a lot to be learned. Yeah. Uh, so I guess my point to us just to point out how little we know, but that to me makes yeah. it exciting. I right. just want to point out, I'm up, I'm opposed to hype, but I love the fact that there's a tremendous amount to be learned and we have the technology not just right. in our solar system, but, but elsewhere. And I want to get to the elsewhere, but you're yeah. absolutely right. I, 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 there's no doubt that, that, that exploring, especially the Enceladus and systems, not so much Mars, it seems to me, which of course would be fascinating to find evidence for fossilized life or extant life or extinct life. But there we, the problem with that system is we know that it's been, you know, that it's been in communication with the earth. Right. Um, I'd like to see in the oceans of Enceladus, which yes. principle has been separated. And I, by the way, if you ask me to bet, I, I would bet you now dollars to donuts that there's microbes there. And I bet you it's an independent genesis of life. I, I, I think it life, as far as I can see, if the earth is any example, evolves about as soon as the laws of chemistry and physics allow it to. But, um, but that would be a profound discovery and I can't wait for it. Profound. And, and it's going to, and by the way, it's going to be done not by astronauts. It's not going to be done you know, right. even by Elon Musk or any of the people that get all the press, it's going to be done by robots because, you know, and that's the other thing I, you know, I get a lot of, you know, I've had fun debates with my friend, Neil deGrasse Tyson about this, but the science that the best science that NASA does is done without astronauts because astronauts, although it's exciting and adventurous, most of the money that's spent is spent on keeping them alive. Whereas, you know, if, and, 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 and the ro and robots can go to places that astronauts just can't. So it's going to, it, the, the most exciting work is going to be done there in our solar system, not by astronauts, I would argue, although it'd be wonderful adventures, but yeah. the science, but then outside our solar system, it's definitely not going to be done by astronauts. It's going to be done by new technologies. And I know that you are one of the early people to be really pushing for the next step beyond Kepler because look, to make it clear, yeah, you can now see planets going in front of stars, but when you can see planets going around in front of stars, if those planets have atmospheres, then the sun, the starlight goes through those atmospheres. And in principle, you could right. look for telltale signs of life. So maybe you want to go into what's next. Well, there's a very exciting uh, future right at our doorstep uh, to watch nearby stars for the moment when a planet goes in front, as you said, and you watch the starlight pass through the atmosphere of that planet on its way to the Earth. And of course, when the light passes through the atmosphere of the planet, some of the light will be absorbed by whatever molecules happen to be in that atmosphere. And some of those molecules might be telltale signs of biological processes. The interpretation will be difficult, but the first step is almost at hand with the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, and there will be others in the future designed specifically to to measure the starlight passing through planet atmospheres. So there will be a great um, new field of uh, sort of planetary atmosphere spectroscopy, uh, allowing us to do chemical and you might say biological assays 
of the composition of those planets. So that'll be exciting. Yeah, and eventually we'll learn a lot. I mean, the point is we have a sample of one right now, the Earth. So we have yeah. we have an idea of what biological signatures you'd have if you were looking at the Earth from far away, but we don't know if those are generic and and we may right. be surprised. But, you know, for example, when I, in my young days, when I, when I wrote a book called Adam, and I, I, I probably might have even mentioned there, I would have thought that observation of oxygen in the free oxygen in the atmosphere of a planet would be a sign of life because in Earth, there wasn't free oxygen. All the free oxygen on Earth was created by life on Earth. But then I learned to be by, by people who know these things better than me. Yeah, that's true, but it's not the only way to get free oxygen. And right. so you got to be careful. Anytime you see these things, you've got to be careful and you'll need a lot of data and we'll learn things. And what we may learn is that the biological signatures are something else. Or maybe the best biological signature will be pollution. We don't know, but but uh, um, it'll. we are in yet another golden era. And that's why I'm optimistic, not pessimistic, because we will have the tools in, in our lifetime to not just explore our solar system, but to, to image at least the atmospheres in one way or another just, uh, um, with um, uh, uh, spectroscopy, if not visually. Yeah. And who knows, yeah. maybe even with new technological optical systems to actually image some aspects right. of those systems. And, you know, in the next 30 or 40 years, lots of things are possible. And so I know that you've been right. spearheading that. And... Um, and but, it, not, you know, I think the, 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 the it's, not, it's not me spearheading it. I mean, there are people out there who yeah. are the real experts. What uh, I meant, so I meant early, I, early I, proponent. I, I'm cheering them on. Let's. Put yeah. It that but way. at a stage when you had a lot of imp, of, of, of play, of, put, of, yeah. of influence because of the work you've yeah. done on planets, you're one of the first people to say, hey, we've got to keep going. We, sh we can't yeah. stop with Kepler. And that's very yeah. important for significant scientists to provide those kind of that kind of rallying cry. And, but nevertheless, I think it's really important to point out that, that the importance of having made the discoveries that you and Michelle Meyer, Mayor and, and, and his, and his collaborators have done. And, and I think it's, you know, it, we want to point out that, that, um, uh, that you and, and Michelle happily shared, uh, the Shaw prize, uh, for the work you did. And I think, um, and of course, uh, and, and Michelle and Didier went on to win the Nobel Prize, and many of us thought that you, I still think that it would have been a nice thing for you to be a part of it, and then these and prizes are arbitrary. But the significance of it, I think, in the long run is what's important. And as Feynman said, that's much important. The discovery is much more important than, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm just, in, it, uh, I hope every day you feel a sense of awe and wonder at what you were able to, have been able to accomplish thus far. But... Now I want to end by going the next stage. You're not satisfied in just yeah. because you're what got you interested in that shower wasn't just discovering Earth like planets. That was a technology. Right. But what you really wanted to know is the other technological civilizations. And that's right. been a question. That's a central question. Are we alone as an intelligent society in, and yeah. in the universe? And of course, much as I have written recently, and people hate the fact that we're the way if we're going to discover that it's not by going around with spacecraft or expecting them to be coming here and doing neat things. So I've argued that <laughs> what we see as UAPs are definitely not aliens, much to some people's chagrin. The way to do it is to listen or look. And you've been involved for a long time now yeah. in in what we call SETI and what we call SETI or what we, you can call SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and that's developed a lot too. So that's occupied the most recent phase of your career. And I wanted to spend a little while talking about that too. So, well, I, I, I'm uh, very appreciative of 
several dozen astronomers around the world who are using radio telescopes to um, listen, if you will, to use that term generically, mm -hmm. listen for radio waves from advanced civilizations. Uh, there's a wonderful group uh, called Breakthrough Listen uh, that has a whole team uh, funded by Yuri Milner, and they're working very hard to use the world's largest radio telescopes to detect signals, radio wave signals from other civilizations. Uh, it's a very reasonable thing to do, and it's the best, maybe the best we can do. There are other ways to detect. Let, let me let, let me yeah. let me stop there for a second because I know you're looking at the other technologies, and I want to discuss them. Radios get the the most play in the yeah. media, and I and again in my in my book about Star Trek from 1993, I spent a lot of time yeah. the early stages of SETI with talking about, but but trying to moderate enthusiasm by pointing out that how hard it is that even even if intelligent civilizations are out there, the universe is a pretty big place, and so is the galaxy, and it's not only and as I like to say. Um, now I have guides, but I used to say I, you know, on my, I, when I got cable TV, I immediately gave up watching TV because suddenly I couldn't find what I wanted to find anyway. There were so right. many channels and that Too was just with 200 channels. But in the universe, right. you have an infinite number of frequencies. And, right. and, right. and, you know, one can give arguments for why it's really, really tough so that even if intelligent yeah. civilization is out there, you shouldn't ex you shouldn't expect the absence of hearing anything to be, you know, absence of evidence, as Sagan once said, is not evidence right. of absence. And that's a clear example. It's a really it tough business. And I, my own bet is that even if intelligent civilizations exist, I'd still give small odds that we'll know about it. But, but what you've been, so radio is one way to look for it. And there's been a lot That's of, right. you know, work and, you know, listening for, I love Lucy from, from, or, or whatever, from, from the distant galaxy or dif distant stars is one way, but you've been looking at other techniques, which I find fascinating. So I, since they don't get a lot of play, I want to talk about them. Well, as you pointed out, the radio waves are just one part of the so-called electromagnetic spectrum, which includes infrared, uh, optical visible light, ultraviolet light, X-rays, gamma rays. And frankly, any of those are reasonable parts of the spectrum of light uh, that advanced civilizations may use. And I can even argue that it's the higher frequencies like optical and in ultraviolet and x-rays that have some advantages in terms of keeping privacy, uh, uh, being able to send individual photons on or off that give you bits like ones and zeros on a computer. But in any case, um, what I've been involved with is searching visible light uh, the light that your human eye is sensitive to, for laser beams. Uh, because some people have pointed out that our galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy, may have a galactic internet, and you can't string ethernet cables between the stars or from a star to a spacecraft or a spacecraft to a colony and so on. Instead of fiber, you would use um, laser beams. And so... Um, we might be able to eavesdrop on the galactic internet by catching one of those beams as it travels from a colony to a spacecraft and the Earth happens to be in between. So um, my group has been using telescopes, uh, visible light telescopes, to look at different stars, different parts of the galaxy, even within our solar system, for laser beams. And we haven't yep. found any. 
Yeah, but again, it's a tough, it's a, not finding it is not an evidence. But one thing that I think is interesting and a recent development that you've been involved in, which is a, a little complicated, but not too complicated, is the fact that, yeah, you know, you, you, if it's laser beam, you have to be able to detect the signal and it has to be in your direction. But things like the sun are natural lenses or what are called gravitational right. lenses, right. which is which, which an area that fascinated me and I've worked on as a theorist. But the fact is that because gravity bends light, objects right. like the sun can magnify other objects behind them. And as you pointed out in at least a recent publication, I think, you can imagine the sun acting as a gravitational lens. So in in one of your searches, I think you once talked about not not having seen a signal that might come from kilowatt lasers or something like that. Right. But if you but if if you happen to use the sun as a magnifier, you could detect a hundred watt laser on a star right. how far away? How far well, away? Well, um, the nearest star is Alpha Centauri and Proxima mm -hmm. Centauri. And yeah, if you use the sun as a gravitational lens, the light from those stars can be lensed by the sun uh, very close within our solar system. And so we're pointing our telescopes at those focal points, hoping that some advanced civilization has put its probes there using the sun as a gravitational lens. And maybe we can eavesdrop on the communication that the probe is involved in. Yeah, it's a long shot, but why not? I think it's amazing to use these. It's a long Again, shot. it's a new technology, and you never know what you're going to see unless you listen or look. And if it doesn't break the bank, uh, why right. not look? That was always my attitude about SETI. If it doesn't break the bank, it's a long shot. I wouldn't bet on it, but why not? And if it's a if it's a billionaire that funds it, even better. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 um, and so I I just find that this this romantic search, which has really been going on for much of your career uh, that's driven you and for which you've made major discoveries and pushed things forward uh, to be to be a lovely example of the quest that the, the inexhaustible curiosity of humans and what you can do if you keep trying and 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 I, and I hope what our discussion has also showed is something uh, not just the incredible humility which I know is not false humility in your case but the generosity of spirit towards your colleagues, which, um, which I, which I, I hope has come across because it's, 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 it's what I've come to know from be, no beginning to know you as, as, as a, as an individual and as a friend, that generosity of spirit is, is so pleasing. And, I, and, 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 and it's one of the things that in my mind makes you such a, not just such a wonderful scientist, but such a wonderful human being. And I hope that's come across here. So, well, that, that's awfully generous of you. I, you know, all I can say is we should all feel lucky. I think we should feel lucky. We live in this era when we can ask these questions and make use of the resources here on the earth to, to try to answer these questions. It, it's amazing that, you know, it was only a half a million years ago that we were clambering out of the East African savanna. And um, here we are now uh, with spaceborne telescopes trying to answer questions, ironically, about the origins of other uh, technological beings, which in effect is an effort to answer a question about our own roots. Where did we come from? And we may get the answer, ironically, by looking to the stars. Yeah, in fact, that's a wonderfully poetic way to put this because... This is an Origins Project Foundation podcast, and and it is to me remarkable that and and it not maybe not that remarkable that the way we may learn about our own origins, which is really what 
what it comes down to, where did we come from? How did we get here? We'll come from looking at the heavens and not at the earth. And why? Because we're one example. And it's really hard to know. Um, right. Although I actually think we're coming very close to discovering the chemical processes that may have led to the development of, of self-replicating living systems. I actually think think that's an area where there's been a lot of developments and 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 I've been following it and we'll talk about it in this podcast. But but surely by looking out and seeing what the universe has to offer, if life is ubiquitous, then we'll learn a lot more by seeing lots of kinds of life, about the kind of variety of life, whether there's a unique chemistry of life. We'll learn a lot more about ourselves by looking up there. And I think that's that's one of the reasons to continue to look out there. When people say, why should we why should we fund these things? We should be thinking about ourselves on Earth. If we want to understand ourselves and our place in the universe, well, we have to look out at the universe and see it. And I, it's nice to have people like you who've been looking out at the universe and 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 with their tools going boldly where no one has gone before. So, <laughs> so, so thanks, Jeff, for for uh, and for all you've done and and for the wonderful discussions here. And and again, your ability to. And your interest and enthusiasm to to explain this to people—it's been a pleasure. Well, to talk thank to you. thank you, Lawrence, for your very generous interview. This has been a wonderful time. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation a non-profit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.